My name is Leah. I finished a documentary called I Bleed, where I went on a journey to break the taboo and the negative cycle around periods in order to create a new one for my daughter, Ava. In this voyage, I met a lot of interesting characters and learned a lot of things that I wasn't able to include in my film. So I decided to have them all in a podcast divided in series. In this series of I Bleed, I explore the academic views around periods. While doing some research, I came across an author who resonated with me, Chris Bobel, a writer, the president of the Society for the Menstrual Cycle Research, and an associate professor of women's gender sexuality studies at UMass. I traveled to Boston and drive outside of the city to meet her in her beautiful home. She invites me for a cup of coffee, and we talk about the importance of addressing the menstrual stigma around periods the links between menstruation and gender, and the impact of body literacy beyond what society and the structure of capitalism think of our body. What made you interested in the topic of menstruation as a start? Like, I've long been interested in embodiment and gender ideology and resistance. So those three intersect really perfectly around menstruation because menstruation is a biological process, but it has deep social meaning, deep social gendered meaning. And menstrual activism, which has been the focus of my work, has, is, a, is a type of resistance, a type of uh, social change effort that tries to challenge the menstrual status quo. So uh, around the body in particular, so it, it gives me an opportunity to think critically about what it means to inhabit a body, what it means to happen, inhabit a gendered body, and the various forms that activism can take to change those, those meanings, to be more um, healthy and progressive and um, in the best interest of the people that inhabit the bodies. And what, how would you define men, the menstruation in general? What would be your defin, your personal, through the work that you've done, how would you define menstruation today? Hmm. Well, I mean, there's the technical definition of the sloughing off of the uterine lining. Um, that's just one quarter of the menstrual cycle. I like to think about the menstrual cycle and menstruation as part of that, of one quarter of that continuous, ongoing, multiple body impacting um, uh, cycle. Um, so I guess my first response to how would you define menstruations, I would say it's part of a whole um, that, and the whole often is disregarded. We don't think about the other three weeks. We might think about PMS the week right before, but often people confuse PMS with any mood swing or fluctuation, whether it's before the menstruation or during or after. Um, but so I think I mean, we can define menstruation sort of technically, like what it means to the body, but I think it's more interesting, honestly, to think about what it means socially and culturally and politically, and that's my interest. And do you think by, uh, like, this, by defining menstruation, not just on a physiolog physi physiological level, why is this so important? Like, and why is it so important to... To give to teach this de definition to young girls, you know, and young men as well, young boys. So I think body literacy, learning to read the body, is essential to enjoying the body, seeing it as a site of power and pleasure, um, to taking responsibility for one's body, their health, um, and their illness. 
Um, and so menstrual, taking seriously menstruation is a part of that project of building body literacy for everyone, girls, boys, non-binary people, the youth, um, people middle-aged, people old, across the lifespan. We all, we all can benefit from understanding how our bodies work. When we understand how our bodies work, then we're more equipped to make in, uh, decisions about caring for our bodies and seeing our bodies as more than problems to be solved, but as actually um, um, resources available to us that, and we can shape them and reshape them in ways that are in our best interest beyond what the industry you know, thinks about our bodies or fields of medicine think about our bodies, but we can actually take responsibility for our bodies on our own terms. And that's sort of almost sounds like science fiction because so few of us can think about our bodies. No one can really think about our, our bodies outside of the structures, you know, the structure of capitalism, for instance. Um, but I think that's a, that's a goal is to be able is to empower individuals to think about their bodies um, on their own terms and not to feel constrained by what advertising says about our bodies, right? For instance, that your body is dirty, your body is too hairy, your body is too dark, your hair is too curly, um, your hips are too fat, whatever. I think um, teaching body literacy gives people the, an opportunity to have an authentic relationship with their body unmediated by all these other voices that typically are quite negative, that tell you you're not good enough the way you are. I think we have to push back against that, not just for menstruators, but for everybody. And in terms of uh, in terms of menstruator, why do you think there's such a negative connotation like throughout the world? Why why is there such a taboo, such shame around menstruation and the blood that comes out of menstruation? Well, some people say you know the menstrual taboo is rooted in the mystery of menstruation. You know, how can women bleed and not die? So they must be witches or they must be cursed somehow. So we have to. Um, be very suspicious of menstruation because it's so odd or strange or sort of violates our norms of what it, what it means. When we see blood, we see danger. Um, I think even people that are very clear that um, there's nothing mysterious or, or witchy about menstruation still see it as shameful and stigmatized. So I think there's more at work than the mystery of menstruation. I think uh, most of us are not too caught up in the mystery of it. I think menstruation is linked to fertility, which is something, culturally speaking, we have a very ambivalent relationship, particularly regarding women's fertility. We at once revere it, but I think in a very superficial superficial sense. Um, we really wanna control women's fertility. Um, we certainly see that play out um, in laws regarding abortion and contraception. Um, so I think that's one piece of it. I think another piece is that menstruation in a lot of ways is a foil to femininity. It is evidence that we are um, of our animal body, our body that um, operates on its own schedule, um, that can be messy, um, that can be unruly, that can leak. And that, that doesn't map onto what it means to be a proper feminine woman, right? Which is contained and disciplined and tidy and discreet and every hair is in place. And uh, you know, what the project of, of femininity really is a project. It really is a constant struggle against the body to, to keep it contained and hairless. And, um, uh, and so menstruation in some ways violates that. And so we really have to work very, very hard to um, police it, to discipline it, to 
keep it in check. Do you think it's partly due to the patriarchal society that we live in? And what role does it play, like, patriarchy in our understanding of menstruation? I mean, patriarchy is um, incredibly resilient and clever. Um, it uh, can express itself really overtly through, you know, real overt forms of gender discrimination, such as gender-based violence. But it also can be really subtle in the ways that it um, reaches into our everyday lives and the ways that it sort of uh, it sends messages about what it is to be uh, properly feminine, for instance, what it is to be a good woman. So I think that um, patriarchy has um, rooted itself in how we define um, the good body, and particularly the good body of the woman. So the good body is um, tidy and um, um, doesn't take up too much space and um, is hyper-efficient. So in order to be um, a good menstruating body, we need to betray no evidence of menstruation. We need to manage menstruation so that there's no uh, uh, blood seen and there's no really discussion of menstruation itself. Um, and I think that's the, that's the hand of patriarchy, the invisible hand of patriarchy. I think it's locked, um, it's in, uh, in the hand of capitalism, um, whereby the body gets seen as a problem to be solved through engagement with consumer culture. So your body is not good enough the way it is. Um, and so here are products that we offer you to um, fix the problem, which was, which is your menstruation may, um, to keep your menstruation invisible. Um, so I think capitalism and, and patriarchy really work beautifully together um, to define what it means to be a good menstruator, which is basically a menstruator that, that is invisible. <laughs> you have to keep that status um, private at all times. And what about like, um celebrating because you know like there's also a trend or like there's another extreme where menstruation is celebrated in some culture it's ingrained in their culture to celebrate yeah. menstruation but how do you see the celebration of menstruation i think menstrual celebrations can be really productive in challenging the narrative that menstruation is necessarily a bad thing it's necessarily something that's uh, stigmatized and shame-ridden. Um, the menstrual celebrations I'm familiar with are monarchal celebrations that celebrate that first period. Um, I have not seen research if there, uh, that links menstrual celebrations to sort of menstrual attitudes across the lifespan. In other words, an interesting research question could be, in cultures where there's menstrual celebrations, do girls and women and everyone around them feel differently about menstruation over time? Um, my impression is no, <laughs> that the celebration is contained to that first menstrual period or the month around that first menstrual period. And the celebration is really a celebration of the girl's fertility and her entrance into the realm of, of womanhood, which is, I think, in some ways problematic because just because somebody started their period doesn't mean that they're a woman. But culturally speaking, she may be read as a woman. So it's really not a celebration of menstruation per se. It's a celebration of her fertility and her new status as an adult woman who can be marriageable and sexually available. So it comes with those risks and vulnerabilities too. 
Um, however, having said that, I think menstrual celebrations can at least make visible what is historically and typically invisible, which is the fact that somebody is menstruating um, and um, can bring communities together, um, can model for um, other members of the community that this is okay to talk about, um, at least for a month <laughs> for the, in that girl's life. Maybe not over the life course, maybe then in month two, in month three, in month four, she needs to be quiet about it, she needs to keep it contained. But at least for that short period of time, this is okay. And I think that's better than a persistent silence where menstruation is never acknowledged, where the first response to a girl's monarchy is clean it up and quick and don't let anybody know and don't even let your father know or your brother know. Um, that's the norm in a lot of places. So I think menstrual rituals can play a productive role but I don't want to romanticize them. I don't want to slip into, oh, the, the solution to eradicating stigma is for us to build rituals up because that assumes that um, those are culturally appropriate in every setting and they may not be. And also that menstruating girls may not want them. My own daughter, when she had her first period, was very clear, in spite of having a mother who was a critical menstruation studies scholar, with a house filled with books about the body and menstruation, wanted no part of any kind of ritual. She was only willing to go to a Mexican restaurant and have a nice meal. But we were not allowed to discuss the fact that she started her period. And I respected that, although it was really hard for me because I really wanted to do something special for her, like have a red party and make a red cake. She wanted no part of that, and I needed to respect that because people are embedded in their cultures and maybe at the micro level or the familial level, like we're cool about this, but then she needs to go into the world in which where the world is not cool about that. So I think we have to tread carefully and not impose rituals in places. They have to be organic and grassroots so that they actually resonate for the people they're intended for. That's, yeah, that's very true. And I think maybe our understanding of menstruation also is very kind of Western, Yeah, you know, perhaps like, People like you know that that brings me to the question about like the same rituals performed differently in different like you know same ritual performed differently in different countries. How how does how does you mean that... like a restriction or a ritual? Yes, like a restriction. A restriction you know, right. yeah, like we talked about earlier. Yes, yeah. So like, what does it mean to be to practice menstrual isolation in one setting, let's say in Nepal, in Western Nepal, where it's called chapade, or in a Mohawk? Uh, tradition in in Canada where it's menstrual isolation is a source of pride and community building being women are revered for their menstruation those are very those are similar they're similar whereas menstruators are um, uh, isolated in some way one is um, positive one is more negative one is a source of pride one is perhaps a source of shame but they're all so so it, it all depends on how you frame it right and it all it depends on how um i think it's related to and how embodied womanhood is understood is it a, a source of power is it a source of are women seen as as resources to be used um how much voice um, and agency do women practice in, the, in their various communities do they get to choose to isolate or um, are they forced to isolate so we have to think about you know the human rights implications that people are choosing to isolate is a very different matter than somebody who is forced against their will um, and you know even in the cases where 
in the case of Nepal, for instance, where chapati is practiced. I'm not a defender of chapati because I know that there's a lot of tremendous tragic outcomes um, where girls are bitten by snakes or sexually assaulted or die of cold exposure. Um, so I'm not defending chapati per se, but I recognize that in a particular cultural context, it has it holds deep meaning. And um, Westerners cannot like swoop in and say, you know, raise all the chapati sheds without because they because in those communities that ritual is is meaningful and and it's meaningful for the girls that practice it as well they are protecting their families against illness they believe um or the cattle or whomever is could potentially impacted negatively by their menstruation so we have to think creatively and indigenously about these traditions um and and um, work with people local who understand what they mean and how they serve community needs. They're not independent of the community. They're come from the community. And so if they're removed from the community, then, then that, um, it's like pulling a thread out, you know, you're going to pull out a lot of, you're going to unravel a whole fabric. So what, what, what does it mean to remove this, this time worn ritual from a community? Um, I think these are really complicated, delicate matters, and Westerners probably need to stand down and let local people take the lead in addressing mm -hmm. these issues. And then I wanted to ask you, like, while, while writing your book, what was the most, and doing your research, what was, what did you find that was, like, shocking or, like... Which book? New Blood or the Yeah, New, new Blood, one? New okay. Blood. What was shocking? Yes, or, like, what was the finding, like, was there any finding that kind of puzzled you, like, you know? Was there something that you didn't expect? A couple things. Um, I didn't know the history of menstrual activism in the US. I didn't realize that um, consumer rights activists, feminist health activists, some environmentalists had been addressing uh, menstruation for decades. I started doing this work in the early 2000s, and I learned that since the late 60s, at least in the U.S., people had been problematizing what I call the, the menstrual mandate of shame, silence, and secrecy um, by creating art, by um, reclaiming ritual, by um, instituting monarchal celebrations, um, croning rituals to recognize menopausal women. They were using humor, and they were challenging the industry to produce safer products um, and to regulate products, and challenging the government to regulate those products. Um, this work was going on under the radar to me as a feminist and, and under the radar to a lot of my peers. So that was interesting that this movement had been existing on the margins, um, and it wasn't new. It was just quiet and under-recognized. That was one surprise. Another was... Um, Reckoning really directly with um, an, a phrase that I learned from an activist, which has now been picked up and used all over the place to my delight, um, not only women menstruate and not all women menstruate. And that, of course, indicates that um, menstruation, while linked to the biological body, is not necessarily linked to the gendered body. Um, so there are non-binary and trans menstruators. Uh, there are um, intersex menstruators. There are women uh, who do not menstruate um, for reasons of anatomy or illness or age. My, myself, I'm now post-menstrual. I'm, I'm post-menopausal. I do not menstruate, but 
I am, I still identify as a woman. So to trouble this necessary um, link between menstruation and gender identity was a real eye-opener for me and I'm really grateful to the menstrual activists who challenged my thinking about that because I had previously uncritically referred to menstruators as girls and women. I never used the word menstruator by the way, I just said girls and women and assumed that all girls and women at some point had a period and I never considered that men or anyone that didn't identify as either a man or woman could potentially have a period or a menstrual cycle independent of the period. Um, and they taught me that, oops, you're being exclusive, you're being exclusive in using that, that those, making those assumptions and you're leaving out people that deem, that, that merit attention, that require services and resources and, and support. So that was a huge eye opener to me. And to see the interest in talking about menstruation in a more gender inclusive way has been really exciting and I think really powerful. The thing is a lot, for a lot, I feel like, um menstruation has been defi defined as like womanhood like yeah. you know it kind of defines your womanhood right 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 or it's a feature it's like a critical feature it's like one of the things that makes you a woman is oh you have a period um and that and it potentially could bond women with other women i mean some of the menstrual activists i studied what i call the feminist spiritualists talk about menstruation as sort of a opportunity for sisterhood and solidarity like you menstruate i menstruate we have that in common let's use that as a as a opportunity to bond and connect um and and that's a potential but to make the assumption that people are necessarily linked through their menstruation because they're women is a problematic assumption and it also can it can exclude people also what it means to menstruate in one place is very different than what it means to menstruate in another place so you might have a very positive experience of menstruation and somebody else might have a really negative one so what's the connection <laughs> you right. might have more in, you might have more in common in another sphere or dimension so um, I think it's it's difficult for us to think beyond the only women menstruate um, uh, thinking because that's what we're socialized to believe. I mean, we say to a girl when she has her first period, oh, now you're a woman. So we immediately make that link for her. Um, but of course, gender and sex are not the same thing. So anatomy and gender identity are not necessarily the same thing. And when we talk about menstruation, we have to acknowledge that or we're just you know, reifying that that binary, which oppresses far too many people. But even then, in that case, um, I think um, even the uh, the products, you know, the way we advertise the products might might need to be reviewed because not right now, I mean, there was you know things they like mm -hmm. the the underpants. They st they did a campaign with a transsexual man menstruating, and it was like very shocking. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like, you know, from removing the taboo with the, the product from instead of using fake blue blood to use red blood, yep. that's like a step forward. It is. And then like including, not defining menstruators as just being women. Right. That would be another step forward. Do you see this happening? Do you, do you think they're thinking about this? I do. I think I have seen a shift. When I first used the word menstruator, again, I learned it from activists. I didn't make it up. Activists taught me that word when I was doing my field research. Um, when I first started using that word, I got a lot of pushback from people who thought that it was take, take, to take gender out of menstruation was to remove the history of gender oppression because it is gendered. The meaning is gendered. As I said earlier, the way we think about menstruation is very much linked to the way we think about womanhood and femininity. 
but I think we can hold both realities at once. We can recognize the gendered realities, the sort, the how the meaning of menstruation is socially constructed based on our attitudes um, about gender, and we can recognize that. Um, not all women menstruate, and not only women menstruate, and that we can think about um, inclusion when we talk about menstruation and using the word menstruator, for instance. Some people resolve the tension by saying women, girls, and other menstruators. Or in my own writing, I sometimes interchange, or I'll say women and girls, and then I will footnote and say I recognize that not all women menstruate and not only women menstruate. Um, I mean, there's I think we're all trying to figure it out, <laughs> those of us that are talking about um, gender inclusion in the context of menstruation, we're all trying to creatively figure out ways to be inclusive and recognize the gendered realities of what it means to menstruate. Um, and I think it, it requires sort of intellectual agility in a lot of ways to be able to do both at once and not to give, to give in to one or the other. Um, but I think it's worth doing because I think any activism has to necessarily always reckon with inclusion and to not um, replicate structures of oppression that give rise to the problem in the first place. So um, I'm committed to doing it. And I admit, though, that I'm doing it imperfectly all the time. But you see, like, if I think about like the Middle East and, for example, bringing that idea in the Middle East, I think I, I don't see any space for it to be accepted at any point being like now, right. maybe in the future, because yeah. already like, I, I, it's just it just feels so far out. It feels very Western, absolutely. I mean, and I know that in, for instance, in Kenya, um, there's been very little uptake with the idea of introducing the word menstruator into policy and even legal um, documents relative to menstrual hygiene management, which is called in many parts of the world. Um, it's just a word that's sort of laughed at, like it's just silly. It's a non-word, um, and and the idea that that there could be, you know, men who menstruate, for instance, people think that's absurd. Um, the idea that not all women menstruate seems to be not as jagged a pill to swallow. That makes sense to people. People understand menopause. People understand illness. They understand amenorrhea, perhaps. But the idea that somebody that doesn't identify as a woman or girl would menstruate, that's like beyond the pale. So I think we just ha we have to be persistent in continuing to introduce it when and where we can. Maybe it's relegated to a footnote for now, or it's casually thrown in the word menstruator, or you mention a trans man and, and a menstrual period in the same breath. Maybe it's, um, it's uh, an idea ahead of its time, but I think we can't give in to that and sort of throw up our hands and say, oh, it's never going to catch on because it wasn't going to catch on here in, in the U.S. either. Um, again, when I started writing about this in the early, uh, the mid 2000s, I got a tremendous amount of pushback from very woke feminists who just felt like that was the end of the world if you're going to try to trouble menstruation, um, trouble the gender binary when talking about menstruation. Like, if you know, of all the things, Chris, why would you pick on this in the context of a natural biological process? Like, that's clearly a female thing. Why are you trying to use that as a place to complicate the gender binary? And that's exactly why, because if we, we have to take seriously that um, that even that, e that even our biological processes don't in don't don't indicate a gender identity, that there is a difference between the bodies we have and the ways we think about ourselves. 
And if so, let's use menstruation as a place to really complicate that. Let's use so I can have a period, but that doesn't mean I identify as a woman. Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't deserve products and services and support because of that. I can't be left out of all these conversations because in some ways a trans menstruator needs more support than anyone else. How do they safely use a restroom to care for their bodies? What products make sense for them? Um, how do they get educated about menstruation? Particularly if, if in many schools where we still segregate menstrual health education, the boys go to one room and the girls go to another, where does the non-binary kid go? Where do they get their information? Maybe they go in with the boys because they identify as a boy, but they still have a menstrual period, so they're not getting access to the information. So this is a really crucial place to think critically about the gender binary and how it hurts people and leaves people out, especially because it is a natural biological process. Do you think there's going to be a change in people's view of menstruation? Do you feel, do you, do you feel menstrual activism will push for a change? Like, when, when do you say, okay, like, is there an end to menstrual activ mm. activism? Or is it something that's going to be ongoing? Like, right. Um, I can't think of a single social movement that has ever um, ceased to be needed. I can't imagine that will ever be done with menstrual activism. Um, it's certainly not as long as gender inequality exists and capitalism's hold over embodiment exists as they do today. My concern about the future of the menstrual activist movement is that it will be ceded to the product makers, that the current emphasis on period equity or period poverty, as it's called um, in the UK and the US, and menstrual hygiene management, as it's called in um, the global south, uh, is overly concerned about managing the body, um, more effectively concealing the fact of menstruation through concealment, right? Through uh, more and more efficient means of capturing um, menstrual blood and disposing of it. I think that's a practical reality. We need to deal with the menstrual fluid. Most of us are not comfortable free bleeding. Um, but I worry that that agenda sort of sucks all the air out of the room so that the actual harder work, the longer term work of fighting stigma is neglected. Because the truth is when you focus on product access, product quality, product access, product affordability, product safety, you're accommodating menstrual stigma by saying the most important thing is that you hide menstruation more efficiently, that you make sure that nobody leaks, <laughs> um, nobody goes without. Um, and while I think that's legitimate and important because I don't think anybody should go without, I think everybody should have what they need to care for their bodies, whatever that is, tampons, pads, cloth, whatever, special hyperabsorbent bed sheets, whatever you need, you should have a right, right to that. I don't think that in itself is going to challenge what it means to menstruate, which is right now a problem to be solved. Um, so I want to beef up the emphasis on building menstrual literacy in the context of body literacy so that people understand how their bodies work and they understand that without shame or stigma. So that menstruation is um, not necessarily a problem, but a, a reality 
and people get to decide how they feel about their menstruating bodies and they get to care for their bodies um, as they see fit, but without the burden of shame. Because right now the issue is so soaked in shame and stigma that we're compelled to just figure out a way to like make sure we hide it from everybody else. And that is exactly where the activism has sort of picked up. It's like, how do we help people hide the fact of their bodies so that they can get through the day? Um, it's a really delicate issue because I don't want to deny that people have a need to care for their bodies. Absolutely they do. But you cannot decontextualize that body care. Um, you can't take it out of the context of stigma in which it exists. And I see too little effort on really talking about menstruation in ways that um, normalize it. You know, it is just a bodily process with deep cultural meaning, but it doesn't have to be stigmatized. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that we are uncomfortable about. Um, leaking is like the number one concern that menstruators have. Um, rather than seeing menstruation, the menstrual cycle more generally, as the fifth vial sign, right? It's an indicator of a healthy functioning body. Um, it is linked to organ health, bone health, um, mood. A number of systems are impacted by the menstrual cycle, not just the period, but those other three weeks, right? It's a continuous multi-body system impacting cycle. And instead, of talking about it in that way, we talk about it as, oh my God, what are we going to do? We got to get people products quick, 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 affordable, accessible, um, high tech, you know, fail, fail, fail proof. And I would like to see the conversation expanded to be more stigma focused, challenging stigma and more educational about the body, about the cycle itself. Um, and I'm worried that the future of menstrual activism is frankly headed in the wrong direction because it is so product focused. Um, that's my concern. It's not a very popular view. Why, why is it not a popular view? Well, I think products are compelling because they're visible, they're relatable, you can count them. You can convince somebody to fund a product distribution scheme. You can do a pre and post test. You know, we gave 10,000 girls products and 9,000 of them didn't miss school as a result. Um, whereas educational initiatives are, you know, they're grueling, they're exhausting, they take a long time to, to implement and to evaluate effectiveness of, and they require tremendous, you know, cultural sensitivity. I mean, every educational initiative has to be tailored to the local needs, you know, the local language, the local customs. You have to build up the capacity of the educators. Um, it needs to ideally be ongoing and well integrated, not only in the health sector, health class, but across the curriculum. I mean, I have, I imagine a world in which in a history lesson, in a literature lesson, lesson, in a math lesson, that there, we could find ways to talk about the body, including the menstruating body, um, without shame and stigma. So that it's not just a one-off in fifth grade, you know, but it's actually integrated across the curriculum and that not only teachers are sharing this information, but parents and religious leaders, um, club people that are running clubs and extracurricular activities, coaches, and so on, so that there's a menstrual discourse that's across domains and is not isolated, so that it's sort of special and precious and everybody whispers about it. Have you had the talk? Oh, I've had the talk. I've not had the talk. Um, that's not the route to normalization. Normalization happens when things are sort of everywhere and, and casual and, and topical and it just comes up naturally. 
rather than whispered about um, or shushed, you know, not here, not now, not while, you know, not at the dinner table or not while your brother is in the room, right? And that's really the status right now. So, so it's, that's, but that's so much harder to achieve than hand out a bunch of products. Um, also, corporations have a lot to gain <laughs> with these product distribution schemes, um, you know, removing the tax from products or reducing the tax on products, um, making products available in schools and prisons and homeless shelters. And by the way, they should be. I completely support that access. And I recognize that there's a lot to gain for corporations with those innovations. Um, so how do we hold those very same corporations accountable? Um, to use their power and their presence to do good. Um, how do we use their resources to create innovative menstrual health education that's not branded? I don't want menstrual health education at um, courtesy of Procter & Gamble in my schools because I don't want them to subtly promote their product under the guise of an educational initiative. So. I think it's harder to promote education and awareness building. It takes longer, it requires more resources, more creativity, um, and it's going to be much harder to measure. And that's not appealing to funders, and it's not appealing to people on social media who want to click on something quick and easy that's going to make them feel good. Oh, I buy one, give one. I, I bought a box of tampons and now a box of pads has been donated to a poor girl in an African village. I feel good about myself today much harder to get behind something that you probably won't be able to see. Where's the buy one, give one with an educational initiative, right? What does that look like? <laughs> um, so I think that's why it's not as popular is that we love the material. We love the quick fix. We love the silver bullet. Uh, we love, we love product-based solutions. We love our consumables. Um, and that's so the language of menstruation has really been bounded by the, um, by sexism and capitalism, right? Sort of like I say, I like to say the language of menstruation has been um, bounded by the grammar of sexism and the vocabulary of capitalism. Um, so we really don't think about menstruation outside of those structures. And, and when we think about menstruation inside those structures, what we end up with is a product focus because it affirms that the body is a problem that needs to be fixed through engagement with consumer culture. So the body is a problem, particularly the female menstruating body is a problem, and the solution rests with capitalism. So to think outside of that forces us to think into other realms like awareness building and education and normalization, and that's just not as sexy. That's very, I, I share I, I, I share this thought. It's, I, I mean, I was reading one article about a young like that was like talking about this young African girl who couldn't like go to school because how many days of school she was missing because she didn't have access to a pad like and then I thought but what if she was putting a cloth and she leaked and she went to school and there was no like it wasn't like so shameful right exactly that's it that's exactly it because I think eventually menstrual products are going to fail eventually we're going to be caught without we're going to get our period by surprise and we're not going to have a product. Our product, we won't have a chance to run to the bathroom and so we're going to leak or spill. Eventually, we're going to leak and there will be menstrual stigma waiting to pounce on us. So it's an illusion if we think we can fix the problem through product because product, 
will never cover all of our needs all of our time all the time in every set setting we have to address menstrual stigma and that means that when someone leaks it's not a big deal i like to think of you know de-weaponizing menstruation so that menstruation doesn't get used against people as some sort of failure to be clean and tidy or there that, that's a nasty girl because she she's leaking and um, she doesn't know how to take care of her body. Uh, well, how, how did her mama raise her that she doesn't know how to take care of her body, right? So we, we judge people and we judge them even more harshly if they're if it's the body of color, if it's a poor body, a homeless body, a trans body, and so on, right? So certain bodies are made more vulnerable when they breach the rules of, men's, of menstruation, right? Which is non-disclosure at all times. Um, so if we don't address menstrual stigma, then we're really not empowering people. People that have access to resources still are soaked in menstrual stigma and shame, myself included. I have had all the resources and all the privileges necessary to care for my body, and I still have lived with menstrual shame and stigma. I still, I don't any longer because I'm not menstruating, but when I was menstruating, I still worried about leaking. I still worried about my pad showing through my pants. I still worried about my, my purse spilling out my tampons in the classroom and people seeing that I had tampons in my bag and would tease me because, ah, so Chrissy's on the rag. Even with access to resources, that didn't make the menstrual stigma go away. So I think we are fooling ourselves if we think that's the end game, is getting everybody properly, you know, covered with product. Menstrual stigma is our, has to be our number one focus. And I think the attention to products really takes us away from that. Um, I would like us to come back to stigma if we really want to build a durable, impactful movement. Thank you. You're welcome. That is great. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to tune in next week to listen to another interview with another expert. If you are a menstruator and would like to share your first period story with us, or if you want to check out other first period stories, the trailer of my personal documentary, and a cool period art project I'm working on, please visit my website on ibleed.com. That's i-bleed.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>